Hello, and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least, that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. With me today, virtually at least, is a woman whose mother's dementia, cruel as it was, brought them together in ways that neither of them would ever have imagined. It also profoundly changed and enriched my guest's life. In 1998, Sarah Reed was an award-winning creative producer and single mother of two, when two events shattered her world. The first was a brush with death when a burst appendix left her unconscious for nine hours in A&E, followed by a four-day stint in intensive care. She spent the next three weeks recovering in a hospital ward overlooking a large London cemetery, an experience that made her realise that we're all a long time dead, and left her questioning, as she puts it, pretty much everything about my life. Four weeks later, her dad called to say that her mum, Mary, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Sarah describes this as one of the worst days of her life. Before the diagnosis, she and her mum hadn't been that close Sarah had left their home in Faversham, Kent, for art school at 16, since when her life had been busy, revolving around her demanding film work and bringing up her children. Over the next decade, as Mary's dementia progressed, a newfound bond developed between them. We learnt a new, more grown-up confidence with one another, says Sarah. In 2000, Mary moved into a care home, and Sarah soon realised that while kindly and well-meaning, the staff had little or no communication training and her frustration developed into a passion to try to help carers provide better care. Unwittingly, she'd found the meaning and purpose she'd been seeking as she gazed out at the cemetery from her hospital bed. Over the course of the next few years, as her dad died and her mum was forced to move care homes twice, Sarah's knowledge of dementia grew and withered a belief that staff couldn't hope to develop a relationship with their charges if they didn't know anything about them. And in order to find out about them, they needed to be able to communicate with them. Sarah resolved to do something about this. At a personal level, she compiled an album of photographs from her mother's early childhood through to her years as a great-grandmother. When Mary saw the album, she glowed with pleasure. Although confused by the present, her mum was brought alive by the past. And thus the idea for Sarah's award-winning Many Happy Returns Chatterbox cards was conceived. Painstaking research into not just dementia, but compassion, philosophy and reminiscence therapy led to cards skillfully designed to prompt conversations with older people. 2,000 cards based around the 1940s were launched in 2008. The set sold out in three months. Today, some 9,000 sets of 1940s and 50s cards can be found in care settings, libraries, schools and private homes around the UK. 
Sarah went on to develop interactive communication workshops to help care staff communicate more meaningfully with residents. She believes that good communication sits at both the heart and pinnacle of good care. Mary died in 2009, age 92. Dementia may have taken her mum from her, but Sarah tells me that it also, in a way, gave her back. Caring for a loved one helps teach you a love you did not know was possible, she says. It's a feeling of understanding, forgiveness, and eventually closure. So, Sarah Reed, a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. Pleasure. I actually know you, Sarah, mainly through your cards, your chatterbox cards, of course, and your real, R-E-A-L, communication workshops. But I was really fascinated to hear about your earlier life, and particularly the fact that until your mum's dementia, you hadn't really been so close to her. Could you just start by telling us a little bit more about your childhood and early life in North Kent? I think your father was GP and... Well, being a child in a large family with various great aunts and grandparents staying intermittently and a mother who was complete homemaker in every respect, my dad loved his older patients. And I think that I've obviously inherited some of that DNA that he had. They were his always his favourites. And I became interested in some of them and would be sent off to have conversations with them as a small child. There were three in particular. And I would go around and see them. Who knows what we spoke about? I'm sure I must have been very, very dull company. But I thought they were quite wonderful. And we had nice times together. And they were always lovely and generous to me. As far as the rest of the family was concerned, I was very odd and odd, artis odd artistic. <laughs> <laughs> artistic and I lived in a little world of my own really I think probably and actually I probably still do. It's interesting so, though that you had that sort of empathy with older people like you know like your dad had had as well mm. from a very early age. Yes and I think that carried on and as soon as I possibly could I started to move older people as an adult I moved older people back into my life. Yeah there are a number of people I would have to thank very very warmly for doing that for me and older people have been part of my life ever since. I love their experiences. Mm. They're, they're often supremely interesting. They've endured stoically all manner of different uh, experiences during Absolutely. their life. Mm. And I feel it's a huge privilege to hear about them. So I think that's been a theme. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because how, you know, in our culture, at the risk of generalising terribly, we you know, as people often say, older people become sort of invisible and there's this sort of worship cult of younger people. But actually, older people are, of course, by very definition, repositories of huge wisdom and experience because of the years they've lived and the experiences they've lived through. And they're, they're going to die, and with them, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll die those memories. And Absolutely. I think that, that you're spot on. And in fact, just at the moment, I feel just thrilled to pieces that mm. I'm able to do a project with Age Cymru where mm. we're mapping life stories of very old, forgive me using that moniker, people who, who are in their late 80s and 90s who live alone and have endured lockdown with just an amazing courage. Fortitude, uh, because they're, yeah, they, they seem to have this, don't they? 
Well, they also are people whose spouses have been mm. not they have been able to see their spouses mm. or spouses mm. actually died mm. during lockdown. Mm. And then, of course, there's the situation with uh, funerals and their own care, and they're very alone. But mm. they, oh my God, they tell cracking stories. Mm. And I'm developing a whole new set of friendships as a result of that, and I feel very blessed. Yes, yes. What, what, what's the uh, outcome going to be? What's the purpose of all this, other than having a really interesting time? It'll take a while, but we'll produce a book and it will be a record of their experiences during their lives and then also their experiences during lockdown. Can you pick out, you know, anything in particular that during lockdown that's been hard or that they found a way to deal with or any stories that spring to mind? Well, I think for all of them, they have said in their own ways that actually lockdown was not so very dissimilar from normal life anyway, because as you have alluded to, the the people in that age group tend to be fairly invisible in society mm. and they've never had very much attention. Mm. Some of them have carers coming in on a regular basis, some of them don't. Mm. And I think that the separation from loved ones who are in campus who they couldn't visit, that's been really challenging one of the wonderful people i've been speaking to has built an entire train set in his living room he wanted one when he was a child and they couldn't afford it and he decided he was going to have his train set now and he's shown me photographs and they're quite wonderful brilliant how was he made it of well he's put some hard board on his dining room table mm -hmm. and he bought a train set off ebay and got extra <laughs> track and bought a station and a little school and platforms and trees and farms and all the rest of it. It's huge. Fantastic. Yeah. And of course, he'd yeah. have to buy all that online. As far as I know, he would have had to have bought all of that online. His family live away away. So mm. I don't I don't think they would have been able to contribute to that. And anyway, mm. it was his train set and he mm. was going to do it like he wanted to. Uh, luckily, despite his extreme age, he's internet savvy. So Yes, well, that's brilliant. How old is he? He might be in his 70s. It's an extraordinary thing that he's done. It's interesting that you should ask about his age because it's one of the things that I never really look for because I think you're never your age inside, are you? No. I, I'm about 800, but I don't feel like that inside. Absolutely. Still... Well, there's a saying, isn't there, that, you know, old age is 15 years older than I am, whatever, yeah. whatever age yeah. I am. Yes. Yeah, you know, you're, it's somewhere else, isn't it, old age? It's just never yes. where we are. Yeah. And people don't act their age unless they're very unwell, in yeah. my experience. Even if they have dementia, yeah. they don't act their age. They yeah. act the age that they feel that they are inside them. I mean, it's the baby boomers that have done it, and I'm one of them. So not very good, really. But we're also obsessed with age and mm. youth. Mm. And the sadness for much older people is that they get bunched into this. They're the over 60s. as Yes, my homogenous mass. Mm. Yes, exactly. And of course, the difference between somebody who's 70 or 90 is as great as it is between someone who's 10 and 20. You cannot mm. compare. So I try not to think about the age and mm. ignore it. It sounds rather self-serving, but I just don't think it matters very much. We are who we are. No, and... absolutely. And that really goes through everything you do, doesn't it? So if going back to you a bit and your family, and um, I've outlined really some of the things that happened to you earlier in your childhood and your career, and just let's talk a little bit about your, your mum's dementia 
And when you, I mean, it's often looking back, isn't it? But when do you think you had the first inklings that things weren't right? I think you mentioned sort of her, she sounds like a bit of a superwoman and she was doing lovely cooking and stuff. And I think yeah. she forgot something that she'd done a lot, didn't she? Some yeah. favourite. Yes, her her cooking was always the thing that everybody admired. She was a fantastic cook. Mm. She had invented, out of necessity, it must be said, mm. um, she had invented a recipe for what we all called Granny's Specials. I don't know what they were called Granny's Specials because actually she made them for her own children, but they eventually became known as Granny's Specials. Mm. And this was just a coconut and egg white and chocolate and... Mm flat like a flatjack really mm, mm, delicious yes and always the glacier cherries just oh put yes across the bread, <laughs> very specific order so there was a proper bridge to cut and all that kind of stuff she made these for years and years and years and they were always what everyone asked for please can we have granny specials anyway my dad had said i'm worried about mum can you come down so i went to visit them and i thought well Granny Specials is something that my mum has made for as long as I can remember. Yes. So we could do that together. And we sat at the kitchen table and I could see that she had no idea what I was talking about. She had no idea what she needed to do. Right. I said, well, well, let's think. What goes into Granny's Specials? What could it possibly be? And she'd look at me completely blankly again. Mm. Eventually, I got her cookery book that she wrote in very diligently, which was falling apart at the seams. And we found the recipe, or I found the recipe, mm. and I said to her, so what does that say then, Mum? And mm. let's do it together. And so we tried to do it together. But I knew she had no sense of what we were doing mm. and couldn't see the point of it either. Why were we doing this? We did, of course, eventually get to the point where we could put the glass of cherries on and put mm. them in the oven all was well. But I knew that if she couldn't remember how to do that, something that she had done all her adult yeah. life, mm. we were in a new place. This wasn't some... Did you talk about dementia or...? With her, do you mean? Well, did or, you think it was dementia, or did, did you? Oh yes, without yeah. question, that was the begin. That was the beginning of how it all started. My dad had noticed it. She would go shopping every day. She had done all through her adult life: a small fridge and lots of children to feed, mm. and uh, local specialist shops. You know, the greengrocer, yes. the baker, the butcher, yes. and so on. And I noticed that she would come back with sugar. This was a very early sign. There was always a two-pound bag of sugar in mm. the bar. Mm. And when I would go down and occasionally, I wasn't visiting very much then because of my other work, but mm. I would go into the larder and along with all the jams and everything else that was in there because she loved to cook, would be pounds and pounds and pounds of Tate and Lyle granulated sugar. And I thought this was very unlike her. And then she always had a drink before supper time. It was always a gin and tonic without ice or lemon so mm. it looked like water she would knock it back and then mm. think oh that's time for a drink she'd have another she'd forgotten then, she'd had one really mm. immediately she would forget and then she would forget she had had that one and mm. and so it went on and I said to my dad look you know this is obviously an issue we need to tackle this somehow and he said well she goes down to town and she brings back a bottle of gin and he couldn't understand that there was something that he could do about it. And I said, well, you could dilute the gin that's in the bottle. It was a good lesson for me because as a doctor, his mm. attitude towards human rights was very firm. And he said, but that would be an invasion of her human rights. And sometimes mm. now I think about the terrible stories that we're hearing 
of families who are unable to visit their loved ones mm. in Qatar. My fury about that mm. Um, mm. and the, the abuse of their human rights mm. knows their bounds, whilst understanding, of course, that care homes are full of people who need to be protected. Mm. Both. Mm. No, no, the stories, though, of people, particularly with dementia, when they don't understand why. Somebody was telling me the other day about a woman with dementia in a care home who was getting so upset because she just thought her husband stopped loving her. Mm. Yeah. My family member, her father, was very unwell with dementia. He was very unwell and he fell and had to go into hospital and they discharged him into a local care home without a COVID test, of course, but we won't go there. Anyway, they said he hasn't had a COVID test. We don't know whether he's got COVID. We mm. are going to have to isolate him. Uh, this is a man who was in his late 80s who had no idea why he had been mm. put into Mm. So it must be so frightening and oh terrible mm. terrible he didn't survive and actually in some ways what would there be to survive yeah. for he couldn't understand why his children weren't visiting no exactly we can't understand kind of thing of being completely sort of abandoned yeah yeah anyway back to your mum and her gnts and that's interesting though your your father as a gp his his uh, stance on that 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 was her that would be interfering with her yeah yeah, it was a good lesson to hear that because it was, I thought, well, he's mad. You know, she she mm. needs help mm. with it. And yet I understood his mm. point of view as well. It was making mm. decisions to her for her mm. actor. Yeah, which is one of your, I can't think of a better word, but sort of learnings, <laughs> um, mm. isn't it? That you, it's much better if you're just sort of with somebody rather than, you know, doing things, as you just said, for and at them and just be yeah. with them, really which is what you began to do with your mum. But let's carry on sort of chronologically a bit. Um, but I know that's one of the wonderful things that did come out of this difficult time was the way you were sort of just with your mum. She began to have, well, I suppose there were many strokes, were they, and falls and... Mm. Yes, she she broke her hip. Mm. That was the beginning of it. It's a classic, really. Mm. She went into a care home and then... Tell us about bed cover wars, which I thought was a fantastic <laughs> way of putting it. and should be a film probably, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the care home that she went to live in was local. Dad couldn't get there easily. He had mobility issues at the time, but he could get in the car and go and visit mm. her. And that's what he wanted to be able to do mm. on a daily basis. Mm. And But the care home was, to my mind, very average indeed. And the room that she had was just a million miles from the kind of experience that she had had in the house that she had completely redecorated and loved. Yes, and she'd lived there for 50 years. With you. And she'd lived there for 50 years. Mm. So it was a big change for oh, her. You know, when you and hear it like that, it just sounds heartbreaking anyway, doesn't it? Yes, it was heartbreaking to see it. I went I went to see the room and I said, oh my God, you know, I just hope that they'll let us redecorate it mm. in the she would like. But they said, no, that couldn't possibly happen. But I thought, well, she had a bedspread that she was very fond of, that she had made herself, which was a pattern full of cabbage roses. And I thought, well, I'll bring that in. I'll put that on the bed. So at least that will be completely familiar mm. to her. She had been on the bed for quite a long time. And, and then I would go and visit her and that would be bundled up on top of the wardrobe and some really quite unattractive nylon bedspread. Did you would just be think, why? I don't get it at all. But it didn't go with the room, you know. Perhaps that was well, it. Because it was nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know what it was. So I would, anyway, I'd take the nylon 
cover off and put that on top of the wardrobe and put the bed cover back. And it was a silent war. I didn't have the courage to say to anyone, you know what? It would be so lovely for my mum to have things that she recognises around her, mm-hmm. which would have been the sensible thing to do. But I was I wasn't a dementia specialist in those days. So No, that was intuitive then. You just thought that like one word, which we did with my mum, you know, even though we didn't know the bed dementia, you want familiar objects around. Yeah, I brought her bedside table mm, up, mm. all the things that were on her bedside table at home. I put it next to so when mm. she woke in the morning. Mm. I hoped she wouldn't feel quite so marooned, but it was very challenging. Um, mm. But we did keep the bed cover, and in the next care home that she went to, it went on and stayed on the bed. And she yes, very, very. I mean, awful that she had to, in a way, go to three different care homes but interesting these three care homes because just to sort of scroll forward a little bit you were starting to take in your mum's photographs and things and beginning to realize I think that her own siblings and parents were in sharper focus to her than you know her sort of current grandchildren and then your dad died and that's when you decided didn't you I think with your sister to move your mum into a care home near you in London and that was the one where there were no more bed cover walls where where the cabbage roses were allowed to stay firmly in place and there was yeah. a cat wasn't there that your mum befriended yes I think the cat befriended her more than my mum mm. I think the cat decided that my mum was the person that she liked one of the people that she liked best in the care home so the cat was always on the back of her chair or sitting on her lap mm. when I went the animal's so lovely sometimes And you made the very good point, actually, I thought this was interesting as well, that that care home was much nicer. They obviously sort of got it. Although, interestingly, you say the staff in both these care homes, they were well-meaning and kind, but in the first one, they were well-meaning and kind, but they just didn't really have any communication training or skills. You know, it's that sort of leadership, isn't it? But then, almost because this second home was so much more welcoming and open, unfortunately, your mum... She managed to get out of the home mm-hmm. and, of course, that was dangerous and everything. And then you had to move her again because she she sort of wandered off and it was... Yeah, so then she moved to a really sort of, doesn't sound a great one, where it was more like a business. I like the way you put in your notes to me, you know, in capital letters, a business with capital R regulations and capital P policies. A little awareness of the importance of relationship-centred care and I think it was when you were visiting your mum in this care home that you really began to come closer to her explain what happened and then how then led you on to your chatterbox cards yeah I thought she seemed completely marooned really and it was she was much closer to my sister and I and we were able to visit her more regularly as a result of that and so I did really get to know her as her condition was deteriorating quite fast. But it's a weird sort of counterintuitive thing that the deeper her dementia came, the better I got to know her. And it was because we could sit together, and I'm quite vague a lot of the time anyway, and we would just sit together and look at people and talk about the birds and I'd say, oh, look, that colour, that's just like something or other from her past. You know, what what do you think about that, Mum? And she would chuckle with Mm. me and Mm. talk about these things. And the other thing was that when she went into that home, I thought, they really don't know anything about her. Mm. I want them to understand where she has come from, Mm. because if they can understand that, they would understand why certain things might be more important or Mm. relevant even Mm. to her. So, yes, that was the beginning of this shift. Mm. And 
of course, we would look at her life story. It was just an album. It was very un flash thing it was just mm. an average album from a photographic shop and mm. I just shoved the pictures in and put big captions underneath that said this is me dancing in the garden or this is mm. me with Ted and Jack and uh, other members of the family etc and I'd say oh who's that then mum and she'd say oh that was blah 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 whoever it was and I'd say oh tell me a story about them sometimes she couldn't remember anything at all but it didn't matter mm. but she able to talk about what the pictures were and this brought her back into a time when she had been happy mm. and she had lots to look forward to mm. um, even up to the pictures of us as the children that is as younger teenagers I'd, she'd say oh you were such a rebel mm. and I'd, <laughs> I don't know why you say that mum so we would we were able to just sit alongside one another. That's mm. what we really did. We mm. looked out at the world together and I tried to be with her as deeply as I possibly could. And of course, eventually her speech failed altogether, as it does with dementia, with so many people. And then we would sit and just hold hands and I'd cuddle her and we'd have a chuckle about something or other. There was always something to laugh at. I don't mean laughing at people. I mean, yeah, yeah, no. that happen in our lives. Mm. I would mm. tell her about the kids and what mm. we were up to and pickles that we had got ourselves into. And she could understand what I was talking about. Mm. But then other people started to drift into my life there. So people would come and listen into what we were talking about. And I would take pictures in from my mum's past, little objects that I could carry in my bag and so on. Mm. And I noticed the interest from the other people. Everyone there had dementia of one sort mm. or another. And they were desperate for communication. They were desperate mm. to have somebody take some interest in them. Mm. So I would say, oh, come over here, you know, come have a chat with us. And so this little group began, mm. not, not very many of us, just three or four of us. And I realised as I would leave the care home after the visit that I was having an incredible experience and it was so rich and fun we were just enjoying each other's company in That's a way so that lovely I, isn't it it's something that people often don't you know you'd be when people talk about dementia it's often a very negative experience mm, mm. obvious reasons it's a very troubling and distressing mm. experience mm. for everybody concerned very often but there's also fun to be had and if you can go with it in a way which is more humorous there's lots of laughter that you can have and it picks everyone up and they have a lovely time so that's what really how the cards began because I thought what people want to do is to enjoy their memories and that's why I called them many happy returns cards mm. shooting myself in the foot I might add because of course everyone thought they were birthday cards anyway, <laughs> yeah. the it is a clever name <laughs> Too clever, by, Too clever half. by half, yeah. I didn't like to say that, but it, it is clever. So, yeah, her closing down became an opening up for me. So it was a That's so, you know, amazing, isn't it? And I do hear that, and it's incredible. I suppose the emotions become very strong as well as the language goes. It becomes a deeper thing in a way. Mm. Um, anyway, it's just wonderful to hear that, and I hear quite a bit from people, and... I sort of know myself. I'm not quite sure that happened with me and my mum, but, you know, how you can become closer and what you get out of it as well. You know, this mutual reciprocal sort of benefits. It's not a giving to, it's just a shared experience. And this interested me because I'd never heard of it. You found out about something called the reminiscence bump. Can you explain that? One of the things 
before I talk about that, one of the things that you were saying about the care workers and their lack of training, it's important to understand that they were looking after my mum in the early 2000s. Mm, it's quite a long time ago. It was a long time ago, it's isn't it? A lot has changed mm, since then. Mm. Care workers now are much better informed about mm. what they're doing and why they're doing it and who they're doing it with. But the reminiscence bump was actually discovered in a slightly different way by Charles Darwin's cousin, who began to notice architectural features up and down the road which he lived in, which he was obviously very grand and rich because it was Piccadilly. And he noticed that these architectural features on the buildings were reminding him of things from his childhood. Mm. And using himself as the subject, he started to investigate. Well, then later... An American professor called Dan Rubin did this extraordinary piece of work which actually established that there is this thing called the reminiscence bump. And to paraphrase for the purposes of this, the period between the ages of around about five years old and about 30, our most informative experiences happen and they affect our life from then on. Mm. And all the people that I'm talking to at the moment in their life stories, the period between those two ages mm. are, are where their biggest pictures, their biggest experiences, mm. their biggest mm. adventures lie. Mm. Them remembering them takes them back into themselves in a way which is very critical for mapping their stories. Mm. So if we know that that's when we're really learning about life, if, if that's the most important bit of our lives as far as that's concerned, not that we don't stop, it's not mm. that we stop mm. learning. We're always having experiences and they get richer and more subtle as time goes on. But those big experiences really do matter. And everyone can sing, as I always say this in my workshops, everyone can sing a song from their teens all the way through without mm. stopping. Mm. Because we would be, all of us would be listening to those things again and again and again, like mm. carols or children's songs or whatever it might be the things that get really implanted and branded into our brains yes it's easy to access them and of course when we remember those things other pictures come into our minds as well mm. so uh, my mum about what it was like growing up in her family during the war I would say what was it like being 13 rather than what was it like growing up during the war yes if, if what I'm saying because there the memory is. It's, oh, I was, well, actually. Yes, it's inside yourself, isn't it? Mm. Yes, exactly. And um, when people say, oh, you know, people remembering, they want to remember royalty and the war. No, not uh, not in my experience. Yes. People want to remember their own personal, personal experience. experiences. Yes. What they were doing on V-Day or, yeah. Exactly. yeah I remember my mum telling me about that, actually, yes. Yeah. It's much more likely to be about sandwiches. And yes, it'll be small wearing. details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> What was actually happening? You know, Absol no, absolutely, absolutely, to be what my what dress my mum was wearing or something. Yes, mm. exactly. And those are the details that fascinate me. Mm. Where were people? What were they doing? How mm. did it feel to them? And of course, they can access those memories really comparatively easily. Now, mm. as, as dementia continues, the memory fades backwards. So, mm. by the time my mum was at the end of her life, she couldn't really tell, she, well, she had lost her ability to speak anyway, mm -hmm. even if she could have done, it would have been challenging for her to describe what life was like as a small girl mm -hmm. in Middlesex, where she was brought up. It mm -hmm. would have been really difficult for her because 
it would have faded backwards. Mm. So the last story album that I made faded in the same way. At the back of the book were her great grandchildren. She yes. forgot who forward they were. Then there were the grandchildren. She forgot who they were. Then there were her own children. And my brother, who went to live in Canada when he was 20, she knew him when he arrived. But if I showed pictures of him to her, she would struggle to remember who he was. Mm. And so eventually, you know, the book was just becoming a cloud, a fog at the back end. And I think, yes, yes. But I, I wonder if the emotions that certain images provoke are still there. I just say that because, and interesting when you say it was discovered by somebody who noticed the, what, Darwin's cousin, was it, or whoever it was? Yes, um, yes. Looking at the architecture, because I remember once saying to my brother, I love going down to visit my parents' grave, and which is kind of understandable. And it's in a beautiful little village, and and I thought it so makes you feel so sort of warm and secure mm. and happy coming down here. And my brother said to me, "Yeah, it's partly. This is going to sound a bit odd, but it's partly these old, they're very old sort of red brick walls, those really old, beautiful sort of English brick walls you get in this little village." He lives in Ireland now, but I know he finds it very comforting to come home, and did when my parents were were old and ill. And he said, it's something about these lovely old brick walls. And when he said that, I thought, yes, it is. <clears throat> and even if I couldn't, you know, I got to a stage where I couldn't remember. I think, and I've never thought this before, Sarah, but I think that if somebody showed me a picture of that quintessentially old wall, it would mm. make me feel nice and gooey inside. <clears throat> and then again, you know, when my mum, just before she died, when she was had very severe dementia indeed, and told this story so often but you know just for her to hear the the nine lessons and carols and once in royal david city it connected yep. well she couldn't have told you it was once in royal david city she absolutely couldn't have told you it was the nine lessons and carols or even christmas or even you know anything actually and she, like your mum she couldn't speak by then and she had her eyes shut all the time but as you rightly said something about that was branded mm. into her soul really it was in her dna and she opened her eyes and there was this connection and even if you don't know why it is because for whatever reason you're sort of beyond that, I think it stirs up, obviously, this something in you. Yes, and isn't, isn't it a marvellous feeling when it happens? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's gold dust. You know, it's worth more than many other things. And yeah. the thing about remembering is that, of course, some dementias, people don't forget so much. Yeah. So. Mm. My mum had Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So she, her memory was fading, you know, very consistently over a period of time. But for people who don't lose their memory, those memories really matter because they are who they are. Yeah. And we can be much more thoughtful towards them. We can be much more supportive of them if we understand what those memories are, because then we know you know, if somebody says, no, I don't want that or I don't want to do that, which is fair enough. Mm, mm, people, why the hell should they have to do everything we want to do? Quite. There might be a link between one thing and another that is from their background that is subconscious because it's done this branding thing in their brain. And if we know that that's there, then it gives us opportunities to work around that with the person and understand them better and deliver some more thoughtful, more nourishing care because of that. And I think knowing the person is so terribly important. And it's been interesting in the time of COVID that Graham, my husband's 
niece is a is a nurse and she has been working at the pit phase sharp end, uh, yeah. yeah with covid on covid wards and one of the things that she has intimated is because it's so busy because of the distance because of the masking up and mm-hmm. the PE and so on and so on and so forth. It's so difficult to have a proper relationship with anybody she's looking after. Mm. One of the things that I've talked about a lot with people in the industry is how do you communicate well from behind a mask? It's really challenging. Mm. So if we're thinking about communication, we're now going to have a couple of years where it's going to be even more challenging than it has been. So knowing about the person and understanding where they've come from could be, I suggest, even more important for their care and their well-being. That's such a good point. I know that for you, listening is key. That's such an important thing that that's even your Twitter handle, isn't it? But um, this active listening, would that be that sort of observational listening as well then? I think the thing about listening actively is about parking the ego, and it's such a difficult thing to do. I mean, I I struggle with it more than most. Parking yourself, parking your own self and saying, I'm just going to be here to listen to this person and hear what they have to say, which of course is what the very best of psychoanalysts and psychotherapists are able to do. They're able to completely focus on that person and hear not just the words, but all the emotional nuances Mm. and so on and so forth. Those Mm. things really matter and Mm. of course in dementia where someone might struggle with language Mm. then those nuances become even more important Mm. and back to the mask wearing if you can only see the person's eyes Mm. well you're just short of so much information Mm. aren't you Mm. Mm. you've got dementia anyway and you're struggling to make sense of anything going on around you then the fact that the person is behind a mask makes it so much more difficult. Mm. I just feel tremendous empathy for the carers, even just the carers communicating with one another in a caring situation. Very, very challenging. So for the person with dementia who's completely marooned in this strange world that we live in, it's unthinkable sometimes. It's like a double whammy, isn't it? It Uh, is, yes. So active listening is is the concentration on the other person and not thinking, oh, did I turn the light out when I went downstairs? Or, you know, what are we going to have for lunch today? Or all of those things, which our monkey brain, as they call it, is full of. To park all of that and say, I'm just going to focus on this one thing takes a lot of concentration and practice and thought and commitment. So listening to people's stories like you're doing, Pippa, I mean, you you must know exactly what I'm talking about, because if you're interviewing people, you're doing so many different things in that process at different levels, and you're having to respond to what you're hearing in the moment. I have complete admiration for you. It is almost what you do in an interview. And I completely get your point about taking the ego out of it, because it's ego. It's also that natural reaction to say, yeah, I know what you mean, because that (laughs) happened to me. And then sometimes at dinner parties, my husband will give me a kind of certain look across the table and I think, I'm talking too much, I'm talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> we all do that. <laughs> Don't you but I completely got your point. I was sitting here thinking, God, yeah, that's exactly what I have to do really in a way. I think it might be interesting because we've talked about real communication workshops. Explain what R-E-A-L, because one of them is the active listening, what the rest of them, because that sums up very 
cleverly, not too cleverly this time, but just very cleverly, what you're talking about with your real communication. And I've done a little bit just as an audience interactive with you. And it's very clever from the most simple suggestions. You do get people to discover things about the person they're sitting next to. Just right. to go talk us through the R, E, A and L of your real communication workshops and perhaps then go on to tell us what you're doing with them. Well, that's all very flattering. Thank you very much. A care home manager said to me, I've seen you with the care. I was going in and facilitating a conversation group and I love these people. They're all old and I love old people. So hooray, fantastic. Anyway, she said, I want you to teach my carers how to do this and I said oh I've got the faintest idea I just go and have a nice time and listen to people and she said well could you do a workshop so I went away and my daughter Poppy who's much cleverer than I am and I sat down together and to try and work out what it was that was going on and I said well it's about people's memories it's about being empathic towards them and encouraging them to want to tell me their stories it's about listening well when I'm being told their stories and it's about their stories and that's always their life story people cannot resist it Mm. so we can all talk about what's going on in, with COVID or what's going on in the political scene and so on and so forth. But the things that people want to talk about actually is what, about themselves. Mm. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. <laughs> so, you're hearing big time now. So I thought, well, there we have it. There's R for reminiscence, E for empathic engagement, A for active listening and L for life story. It seemed so obvious to me. So there it is. It's real communication. If we can deliver and receive real communication, then we're going to be happier. We're going to be more fulfilled. We're going to feel nourished and so on and so forth. So I went back to the care home manager and I said, well, I've got this idea and I don't know how we'd do it, but I think we need to do it entirely interactively. I do not want to stand in front of a room of people and tell them I want them to discover these things for themselves so then I developed some little tiny things that people could do to discover this and one of them is front I call it front door let's play front door and what the front door game is is that the I say to a person of age so can you tell me about the house you lived in when you were little? And they say, oh, yes, it was this or that or the other thing. Sometimes they struggle to get there, but we're patient and listen and give them little threads to latch onto that might help them. Red brick, <laughs> thinking about your your mm, wall. Mm, uh, mm. And then I'll say, so can you tell me about the front door? Can you describe the front door? What colour was it? What mm. kind of letterbox was there? Was there a mm. knocker? Was there a bell? Was there a window above? a fan lighter, windows in the door. Did you never use the front door? Did you go around the back or the side or whatever? And what I would like everybody to do is just sit and share your stories about your front doors. Well, my goodness, it's almost impossible to stop people talking once they get going. Because, of course, the front door is the entrance into all those memories of being in the house. Mm, Clever. And not everybody has happy memories. And people Mm, always say, mm, "Always, what do you do about people who've got unhappy memories? And I say, you manage it. Because actually, the person doesn't necessarily want to remember the unhappy memories. They want to remember the happy memories. And so I, I show them techniques, which I won't go into now. It would take too long. I show them techniques where they can gently move the person from that tragedy or that pain 
into somewhere where they can actually say, oh, and we used to laugh because we did this, that and the other thing, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. In the live stories I've been doing recently, the thing somebody said to me, what's the biggest thing you're hearing? Is there anything you're hearing that you're hearing from everyone? And I said, people being hit. All the people I'm having these conversations with, bar one, were hit and continually hit and hit and they were given hidings. They were walloped. It's a completely different language than we're used to now. So I don't want them to go into places when they're talking about that that will distress them. So I'm having to use all of that skill set that I hope other people can learn to move them just gently and subtly into another area. Mm -hmm. And invariably, there's a funny story at the end of it. It's a strange thing that people, and I suppose it's a coping technique, that they would find something that's funny afterwards. And we can honour the moment of extreme pain and then laugh together about what it was that came out of that, and then we're able to move on. But the front door was something I did with Christine Bryden, who's this fantastic yes. person living with dementia who lives in Australia. And she came to England and we had tea together. It was a fantastic afternoon. It was short, but we had a lovely time. And she said, I can't remember anything. And I said, well, what about your front door, Christine? And she said, what front door? Are you talking about now? I said, no, it's a child. And she said, oh, it was red. It was immediate. She went is Christine there. Bryden living with dementia? Yes, mm. yeah. And she's written three books, I believe, maybe mm. more, mm. Uh, about dementia. And she's a, just a top bird. Yes, I have. Uh, yeah, I've seen her stuff, yeah. Very thoughtful and very switched on about it all. And, of course, her dementia is deepening and she won't be able to write books now. But this is going back, I don't know, eight, nine years, I suppose. And she was here with her second husband. Anyway, she said, oh, yes, it was red. And my mum was Belgian. Because I said, oh, red front door. It's quite unusual in those days, wasn't it? Not that she's that old, but nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, yes, my mother was Belgian and she wanted a front door. And she said, our garage door was red as well because we had some paint left over. Well, you know, now I want to know everything about her. Yes, and absolutely. So absolutely. And she was able to tell me extraordinary things about her family. We were able to celebrate those stories. And her husband, who is her second husband, as I say, said to me at the end, everybody should have to do this because I've learned things in the last hour that I had no, no idea. idea. Mm. Mm. So these pictures we carry in our heads do really matter. Oh, and absolutely. Unpack them a bit. <laughs> unpack them. Yes. It's a bit like a sort of... I'm going through a phase of reading detective novels and it struck me then, you know, it's the way these clues come up, don't they? And then it's like, oh, yeah. yes, and then it opens another whole doorway. Yes, what a good way of putting it. Yes, mm. it is just like that. It's like a detective yeah. investigation. Mm. And I, it's something I say to care workers, you know, you're going on a journey of discovery. These people are full of incredible stories mm. and to in them is just will change your life and mm. make theirs much better as well yeah. so it, it's a win for, it's a win everybody. for everybody yes but it's great what you're doing is absolutely brilliant so thank you very much for coming on and uh, i think lots of lots of lessons there well thank you for inviting me it was very nice of you even though the phone line to sarah wasn't the best for which many apologies some things are simply beyond our control 
I love her story for many reasons. The fact that her mum's dementia brought them closer. As she says, her closing down became an opening up for me. And also that through it, she discovered the purpose in life that she'd been seeking. Dementia can have some small glittering silver linings. I keep learning this again and again as I talk to people affected by it. I love that she turned difficult negative experiences into something positive, making life better for the thousands who find themselves in the same situation as she and her family were. Again, so common among those I meet through my work. And of course, like Sarah, I'm nothing if not a communicator, fascinated by the myriad different ways in which we can engage with those for whom speech is no longer possible. Throughout this second series of Well I Know Now, I've been privileged to meet some truly exceptional people, all in their own ways, making a difference, enhancing the lives of those with dementia and their families and carers through various means. From the academic and medical research work of Professor Shubo Banerjee, to the huge, complex demands of running the UK's largest dementia charity that Kate Lee faces while dealing with the personal challenges of being the daughter of someone with the condition living in a care home in these difficult times. And then of course there was the incomparable Jennifer Butte, the doctor with an insider's view of what it is to have Alzheimer's disease. She and many others with dementia talk about the desire to be enabled to live rewarding lives not disabled by being treated as if there's nothing left that they can do. Dr Butte demonstrated this perfectly when, due to her IT skills being vastly superior to mine, she enabled our chat to go ahead when I mistakenly thought that it was scuppered. You would have been able to hear her fabulous podcast were it not for her initiative and skills, while I, a person without dementia, had been thwarted by technology. Not forgetting, of course, the incredible darnings of Jenny Dutton, the lessons in love I was given by Mike Parrish last week, the great honour of chatting to one of this country's most celebrated and respected actresses, Glenda Jackson, such a sweetie as it turned out, and the lyrical insights of author and campaigner Nikki Gerrard, still battling away for the rights of those in care homes to visit their families for Christmas, each in their own way, enlightening, informing, and above all, committed the dementia cause. I'm taking a break over Christmas. I do hope that you all manage to have a happy and festive one. Covid, social distancing and bubbling notwithstanding. I will be back in the spring of 2021 with more wonderful guests sharing stories about what they know now. So goodbye and Merry Christmas and see you in what I really hope will be a bright, sociable and healthy new year. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.